Hello and welcome to Caged in Pitcast, a deep dive look into Michael Zarnowski's 2021 drama Pig. This week I had the absolute pleasure of sitting down with both Philip Klein and Alexis Grapsas to talk about the score for this film and their kind of unique way of how they came together to do the score and I'm sure if you've seen the film you'll definitely agree that it's some beautiful music you can hear a piece under me right now um I think this conversation is relatively spoiler free so if you haven't seen the film you can still listen to this one um I would obviously recommend that you do watch the film which you can watch in UK cinemas right now as well as checking out altitude.film to find out where it's streaming as well as where is your local cinema listing i'll also be putting links in the show notes so you can easily find all of that information so please enjoy my conversation with alexis grapsas and philip klein and please ignore the moment where my brain falls out of my head Today on the podcast, I have the absolute pleasure of not being joined by one, but two of the composers of the soundtrack for Pig, both Alexis Grapsas and Philip Klein. How are you guys? I'm doing well. Thanks for having us. (laughs) Yeah, likewise. Thanks a lot for the invitation and having us on the show. No worries. Well, I guess the best place to start off with is how you guys got involved with the project. Was it? Phil who came on first or was it you Alexis? Uh it was actually me that uh came on first. Um I I was involved quite early in the process and uh you know I read the script while they were shooting. Um and um I had to write some you know first ideas and 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 demos as we call it um in our world to even be considered and actually eventually you know get the gig. Um, so, uh, it was something that was, you know, a work in progress from everybody and started discussing with the filmmakers, um, early on. And then, um, we were on this for a while, you know, this project project was like a long process. And, uh, at some point due to some, you know, personal scheduling conflicts I had and, um, other things that were happening for me, I had to ask for some creative help. And uh, Phil was the first person that came to mind because, uh, uh, you know, we've known each other for many years and we have collaborated in the past in various ways, even though we've never actually shared the credit on a film. This is our first time together, uh, you know, co-scoring something. And um, it was, you know, the only person I could think of and wanted to bring on board. And then um, he basically, you know, took over a lot of, this stuff that I've done and, you know, took it home and did an incredible job um, continuing 
um, the ground that I had set and the sounds that uh, me and filmmakers have been, you know, working on for a while. So, what was the what was the not this yeah what was the state of the score when it was kind of handed to you, Phil? Was it kind of like how much of it was was the bones of it, most of it there? Oh yeah, I mean, I I you know I, I'm very grateful that I got a co-scoring credit. <laughs> I I uh, Alexis has done as I said a lot of the heavy lifting at that point. I mean, I he had kind of gone through the process with the filmmakers of, you know, trying out a lot of sounds, trying a lot of textures, um, melodic content and stuff like that. So by the time I got involved, um, yes, I mean, by, by all means, the foundation was pretty, pretty firm at that point. I mean, I, I was basically filling in the gaps of cues that hadn't been written yet. And, um, you know, if there were some notes on something that, you know, they had a, a couple bars they didn't like in one of Alexis's cues or they wanted a slightly different version and another thing I would, I would just kind of like open his sessions and start working on that. So, I mean, I, it's hard to put a quantity, I think on percent wise, but um, I, you know, I, I think if we think of Alexis as the starter and me as the closer in, in baseball, it would be similar to that. <laughs> so I'd be interested to know what were some of the, um, like touchstones that Michael Zarnowski would have had for you in regards to was there any temp score ever or was there more discussions of like this is the kind of thing that we're looking for whether it's in popular music or I don't know with like the the needle drops in there was that what was the Bruce Springsteen song always in the script um there was there was quite a bit of temp score and even a variety of different temp scores ideas that were tried for the process um even stuff that um you know brett the picture editor had tried before mm -hmm. with michael um or even later on we we brought an amazing um music editor um on board his name is clint clint bennett um whose actual you know most recent credit is uh, dune the new uh, hans zimmer uh, uh, scored film that's coming out right now and uh he helped us a lot to to set some foundation with the temp um i don't want to go into any details because i don't think you know <laughs> yeah, yeah. talking about temp music is necessarily a very interesting topic but yeah. the main thing that michael uh was always picking you know small pieces uh from here and there from the temp. he was never really happy with anything uh which was actually great for us because we had the opportunity to create something you know unique but it would be a con mostly a conversation about, you know, this is what I'd like about this part, but this is what's not working for me. Um, this is what I'm not getting out of this. This is completely wrong. And it's it's a good way to communicate with a director who doesn't, you know, necessarily speak in a musical language. Um, so, but it, we also had, like Phil said, you know, we had a lot of trial and error. A lot of times, uh, you know, the film shifted a lot from its original point, even from the first, um, you know, cut that we saw with the first edit where it started and where it is in its final form. It's, you know, a different film. So the music was shifting and the approach was shifting along with that. Um, we wrote, you know, tons of music, like lots of hours of music that nobody will ever hear that did <laughs> not, you know, make it in the film. Um, so so it, was, it was a lot of, a lot of that, but we never really had a solid temp uh for this music and um we we also you know had great input from the filmmakers as well because there was you know um uh, sometime in the process that everybody 
was feeling lost and then somebody would throw an idea and was like, what about this? Or, you know, what about that? And it would un- unlock new things and possibilities. And that would be our new jumping point in terms of inspiration or, or where to draw something from. I, I don't think uh, that I'm on fire was always in the script either. I, I, there, there were several, there, at least the, I'm aware there were discussions about several different songs and then they ended up going with that one. Um, yeah that's that's true there was another um another song actually that was in the script that everybody wanted but um you know how it is with licensing and and budgets (laughs) and indie films like you don't always get what you want yeah that that, it's it's really interesting because obviously looking at the kind of needle drops that we, we have in here there's one that almost sounds like it could have been a part of the score and it wasn't until i kind of like was digging deeper today i think it's a track called a dead man walking oh no it's not no it wasn't that one it was um black veil by rose blood that very much feels like it's in keeping with your your score like what were the discussions on like kind of instrumentation like wise was it was it always kind of guitar led or were there other kind of instruments that were were thrown about before you landed on that kind of quite guitar heavy score yeah alexis how many how many instruments did you use until you got to a guitar (laughs) (laughs) um yeah no like i said we've tried everything you can possibly imagine i mean we started from you know from a piano score orchestral score electronic score uh purely folk acoustic to more electric grungy guitar um the best way to describe it, you know, initially uh, we were trying for, for a tone, right? For an overall tone, yeah. which kind of landed for us uh, when a couple of instruments came to place and started, you know, combining a sound. Like one of the trademark sounds of this score that you hear, you know, in the beginning and in the end of the film when when Rob, um, Nick Cage's character, is in the forest and he lives this serene life, is, um, you know, a bowed cavaquinho. Cavaquinho is a very small plucked Brazilian instrument, basically, that we tried to play in a non-conventional way. And I was working with this amazing guitarist and he's, you know, started experimenting stuff uh, in the studio. And he, you know, when he played that, I said, okay, let's try that. This is a sound that could do something. And it provides a very um, brittle and uh, kind of like almost ethereal sound into the whole um Thing that creates something uh, almost, you know, magical, as if somebody has found their peace and their absolute um, place of happiness. And at the same time, this was combined with something with a very raw sound, uh, which is a baritone violin. So instead of having like a classical, mm-hmm. proper sounding, you know, instrument of the orchestra, we we had this custom instrument that. Uh, um, one of our musicians had his name is Paul Paul Cartwright. He's an incredible violin player, and uh, we tried this instrument played in a very raw, almost folksy way, and that created a very nice juxtaposition of darkness with mm-hmm. the other sound we had created. Um, and then there was always this idea that we want to create something a little more raw and grungy and electric when we move from the forest into the city. And that was something that Michael always, the director, used to to 
to say as a direction that he was asking for. So that's kind of how the electric guitars and the sound came on. It's basically how can we take this uh, and create that atmosphere with a more, you know, grungy, distorted sound as we follow the journey into the city. I think it's it's interesting too. I mean, Alexis has spoken about this in the past. It's just at one point there was like band kind of like big band thrown out as an idea. And, and, and so like there are little hints of horns that play underneath that theme and the opening and the ending. And again, it's not even something you would actually probably clock on a, on a conscious level, but, but um, it's there and it gives this kind of like indie vibe in the background of it all. And, and you know, I mean, that's kind of the, the art of assimilating what a director wants into something that's, you know, a- appropriate for the film. I take it one of the things, because obviously you mentioned there's lots of music that was used for this. Was was silence ever talked about a lot in regards to, like, your job on it? Were there certain scenes where Michael was insistent that there is no music for this? Because it's a very bold film in that it kind of, there are drawn out sections where there is no music whatsoever. Uh, yeah, I mean... <laughs> <laughs> I, there, there was a full cue written for the opening of that movie that it, they only basically used the last third of um, in the film, you know, and, and um, there were plenty of instances, I think, where, you know, we were, we were kind of constantly asking ourselves, is this better scored or unscored? You know, is it better just to be played with sound design or whatever? And um, I think Michael is really interested in that kind of exploration of, kind of rawness versus the sheen that a score inherently adds to a film. So, um, yeah, I mean, I would say that that was a huge discussion in in several (laughs) points. And I I mean, I'm sure with Alexis, when he was on, it was a a huge thing. And certainly as I came on, it became, as we were finishing the score, it became even maybe a little more kind of, you know, the forefront of like, should we be doing this or shouldn't we be doing this or, you know, so yeah, it was definitely a big a big part of the process. And and one other thing is that, you know, sometimes you don't know until you actually see it. I mean, even me and Phil, who are, you know, professional composers, sometimes don't know the right answer. Yeah. We don't expect sometimes, you know, someone who's not a musician to know the answer of what the music should be and what it should do. And, you know, sometimes the best solution is let's write something, let's put it against picture see if it works if it doesn't work we are going to be the first ones who's going to say who are going to say you know this has to come out this is not working and we both have the same philosophy in terms of you know approach on how we approach a film like you know we don't like to overload films with music we we always want to put music when it's needed and when it's adding something that's not necessarily already there and um, that's why it was easy for us to also work on this film together because, you know, we were the first ones who wanted music out when it wasn't necessary. It was a process, obviously, to get there and and reach the choices that you see as the final product in the film. But um, we, I, I think we both agree on the fact that silence works great in a lot of places in this movie. And there's a lot of sad or dark moments that, you know, everything you need is there like the performances are are great the editing is great and you don't need anything else there music should not just make it you know more sad or more melodramatic or something like that you know so 
it all depends also on, on on what you're working with. Sometimes it's not just our decision. Um, the movie and the scene has to give you a lot of this information. Um, that's why it's a collaborative process with the director and the editor as well. That's really fascinating. I kind of like because looking at the, the the score itself, like on like any streaming service, it's twenty eight minutes long, and it's uh, that felt like hearing you guys talk about the fact that you wrote hours of it. It's like of music is <laughs> is vastly interesting to me, but at the same time, it's I think it is like the the score itself like works beautifully within this film and manages to capture i think with pat scola's amazing cinematography this kind of magical realism that the film um is kind of evokes in the fact that it feels like it's somewhat i don't know a couple of degrees to the left of the reality we we live in like was that was that kind of stuff i don't know what were the discussions in regards to to stuff like that was it I, I, I don't I don't quite it's 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 hard to talk about music right it's that thing of like it's an unquantifiable uh feeling and kind of texture you get from score I think and I think one thing we both kind of agreed on early on is that, that Nick's performance was is so strong in this film that that it just doesn't need music in a lot of places you know what I mean so I I think so much of that kind of like hyper-realism or kind of less hyper-realism is just about letting his performance do its thing. And, and you know, when we want to feel something a little more kind of to the left, as you're saying, of, of, of that, we, we then can kind of, because there's not that much music in the score, when you do use it, it becomes that much more powerful in a way. Um, and... Uh... I mean, it does. It does sound very, very simple. But one of the fundamental, you know, things I always have in mind when you, you know, work with a film like that, uh, it's just to, you know, try to not get in the way and not mess it up. Yeah. Um, and and Phil, in the beginning, when we were talking about our collaboration, you know, he really liked to downplay his role because he came <laughs> in at the end. But um, it's really easy to tell somebody why don't you take this idea and make something with it and you know mess it up so you know that's that's a very rare thing that i very hardly find in collaborations with people to know exactly what to do at the right time and um minimalism is something that you know sounds very easy in a lot of uh, cases when you hear the final thing but it's a very difficult process to get there and throw all the other stuff out and all the hours of music we wrote and all the, you know, noise and ideas we had to reach to a point where you're like, you know, this is what I'm going to go with. I'm going to use these three instruments and this is the moment in the film where I want this to happen. So, it, yeah, there were a lot of discussions um, about that, but it was mostly an, an unconscious, instinctive effort towards that. It wasn't uh, a plan. Okay, so... um I guess, yeah, one of the things I really want to, to talk about is the way that you kind of approach a score. Where do you tend to start when it comes to scoring something? Is it kind of, I know that there's, I think that that Brazilian instrument you talked about creates this like great motif that we get at the beginning and end of this. Is it did something like that come early or, or is it kind of just you start at the beginning of the film or do you just pick a scene and go, I'm going to start here? Um, <laughs> the, Go ahead. Yeah, man. I mean, yeah, I don't, ahead. yeah. 
I mean, there, there's I've never done the same thing twice in, yeah, yeah, yeah. in between two films. So I, I'm just gonna try to narrow it down to you know this film and the way I usually work. And I think it's pretty much the same way that Phil works is when in the beginning you just try to write uh, some things and basically come up with a concept and a sound that you don't necessarily worry too much about what scene is going to go mm-hmm. or how is that going to work with that dialogue line or whatever. You're just trying to create a feeling and something that when somebody hears it, do you hear your movie in there? Will the director see that being part of that movie? Will we get the overall emotion that we're looking for from that film? Um, the the thing that, you know, is the big theme was, you know, written on a piano. I mean, you never hear it on a piano, but then I ended up trying it on different instruments. And that instrument was like, I don't know, the eighth or ninth idea I tried that landed. It wasn't the first thing that came to mind. Um, and maybe we wrote, I don't know, 10 different themes with 10 different sounds for that movie. And essentially we landed on the proper one. So sometimes... I was very lucky to just write something and the director tell me, I love it, this is it. <laughs> Sometimes I've had to go the way of really exploring deep and say, yeah, I've got to write this again and again and again and and really, you know, dig uh, until I get it right. But um, yeah, Phil, Phil can elaborate more on his approach, but this is usually mine. I just write something sometimes even with without picture and then put it on a scene or a key moment of the film and see if the, over, the overall vibe is, is right for me and if it's working with what I'm going for. Yeah, I mean, I'm very similar. And, and it was obviously a little different experience for me on this one because I didn't start at the beginning of the process. But but I, I, and my my approach at the beginning is is pretty much exactly that. I, I, I watched the film several times with and without the temp. And then I I basically just sit at a piano or I go for walks or whatever. But I, I always find the first two to three weeks of working on a film to be the messiest part for me. I mean, I really like question my whole talent and all this kind of stuff. I, you know, I go through so much kind of like denial and in 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 doubt about what's going to happen, and then suddenly something will happen, you know, and some theme will pop into my head or some harmonic change will come into my head, and and like Alexa says, I mean, you know, you can write something on the piano and and think like, I, I can hear how this can work, but until you find the right sound for that theme or that the, the orchestration of it or the, the setting of, you know, those chords or whatever, it, it, it can still kind of be messy. You know, you, you, you think you have it, but then it, you're not finding the right vibe or the musical environment for it. And, and I think that kind of is the second part of the process for me is like, what are the colors of the score? And, and and that to me is like where it really takes a long time in in a way. I mean, harmonically and thematically, it it tends to come faster to me than it does. Like, okay, so now how are we going to make this sound good? You know, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, unless it's like a straight orchestral score, which I do get asked to write quite a bit, but but this was certainly not that. You know, it was it was always going to be something unique. So I think like that's why I always downplay i guess my role is because alexis did all that work of like finding the colors that that were going to be the score and then you know i i really i didn't have to deal with that part of the process as much um i mean certainly it's it's funny the the thing that phil mentioned that you know first two three weeks it's 
it's a terrifying time for <laughs> pretty much every composer. And it's, you know, it's also what kind of like makes it fun, but it's where you actually, you know, have no idea what you're going to do. And you think you might write the most brilliant thing in the world. And then the editor will send you a new cut. You'll put it on, you know, against picture. And for some reason, it doesn't work. You can't explain why. Because mm-hmm. you hear it on its own and you think it's brilliant because you wrote it and you put it against picture and something throws it out. And it, th- that's the beauty of it, that there's no formula. I mean, sometimes I cannot even explain why. Mm-hmm. I can just know whether it works or doesn't work. Um, and, and the other very interesting thing here is about what you do in the beginning is that one thing that's also terrifying for me sometimes mm-hmm. is that, uh, you know, you start interacting with filmmakers, directors, and producers that have been with this project for maybe a couple of years. And they know this story and this character and what they have in the mind like very, very well. And you jump in on something after messing with it for two weeks. <laughs> and, uh, you know, you're competing against uh, time, basically, <laughs> that they've spent with this project. And, you, you, you know, you bring something fresh and something new, but there's no way you know the story and the characters and the vision better than them. And that's always a very, you know, um, very fine thing for me that I'm, I'm trying to be aware of on, on what I bring to the table at that moment in time. This next question is probably going to be like somewhere to the left of, of thinking, but I think you guys might be able to, I don't know, uh, at least, at least give your opinions on it. Obviously like the character of Amir in this is constantly listening to classical music as people who obviously deal in i don't know uh emotive music to kind of yeah in tapping into what what music can like tell us about a character or something like that what do you think that the kind of amir's obsession with listening to classical music tells us about that character Uh, i mean i think it's just his constant need to to try to be in higher society. He's trying to live up to that kind of wealth level that his father has. And to him, that's being cultured in the sense of not necessarily loving classical music, but just knowing something about it, you know? And I, and I mean, that's probably why he drives a car that he can't really drive and, 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 you know, dresses very nicely and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, it's, it's all part of his ruse, I guess, as just trying to um, give a, give a, be something that he's not, I guess. Yeah, yeah and it's also funny. I mean, it just <laughs> makes his character even more bizarre uh, because you see this 20-year-old kid driving a you know, yellow Carrera and then he's just listening to Beethoven, so it just doesn't make sense. Um, but it, yeah, it kind of like circles back at the end of the movie, like Phil said, when we, we go back into his dad's house um, and his dad is also a big classical music lover. That's all the music that plays when we are in his place. And um, it's the acceptance he's looking for from that environment. So other than the funny element, the comedic element, it kind of has a story uh, depth uh, behind those two characters and how they come. That's what I think, like, this very much for me feels like a film that kind of, everyone's pushing in the right direction and kind of, like did it did it feel like that working on the project was it kind of like everyone is like going for the same goal and i just in the regards to like how the film like watching it and kind of 
I've had the pleasure of speaking to, uh, like, yeah, Vanessa Block and uh, David Now and Brett Buckman, stuff like that. And sounds like everybody kind of had an idea of what this, like, what the film was. Like, everyone was pushing in the right direction. Did it? Did it feel like that? Or I don't know how to answer, ask this without sounding like a loaded question. Like, I don't know. It feels like there's some kind of magic came together to to, to get this to work. Or. I mean, Phil, you're going to go first. Yeah, I, I mean, that's it's a hard question to answer because as, as a composer, I think like you come into those situations and in music, music is this thing that kind of everyone has an opinion about. You know, it's mm -hmm. a completely subjective thing. And and so, you know, oftentimes there are disagreements. I don't want to say there's arguments. I mean, sometimes it gets into arguments, but not so much on this movie. I, I, everybody disagrees sometimes when... Yeah. You're like, I don't think that's the best way to do this, or I, I want this, and I don't think we should be doing that. But but I do think that, you know, uh, we all obviously want to create a good movie and, and, and hopefully a great movie and, and an experience that makes people feel something. And and I think in that regard, yes, of course, everybody was on the same page. I mean, no one, no one, I think, had this like gigantic ego that we were all fighting against or anything. You know, we were all pretty young filmmakers in the sense that, maybe don't have that yet <laughs> hopefully don't ever have it but i but i think um you know i i think michael always had a pretty pretty clear idea of what he wanted the final product to be and i think that it's important uh, and it's goes for any creative position to to kind of acknowledge that maybe you don't always have the answer on how it ends up that way mm. uh, you just know that you know you you want it to feel a certain way by the end of it and and I think that's that's like the beauty of film in general is the collaborative process is like leaning on your creative partners and collaborators and in the people that are directing you or producing and just saying like you know I'm not sure how we're going to get here but I I think we'll figure it out and and in that respect then yes pig to me was was very much that we weren't always sure on how it was going to end up where it was going to end up but you know we got there and it and it turned out pretty well at the end of it so so I think, um, yeah, I mean, I, I would agree with the statement in general, for sure. It doesn't, I, that doesn't mean it's not messy sometimes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, my experience also was a little more um, extensive than Phil's because I was a part of the more early discussions that, um, you know, there were a lot of <laughs> heated arguments and, and strong <laughs> opinions. But uh, like Phil said, like it was always for the best of, of the film. Um, and it was kind of two. There was a smaller circle of people that you know were focusing purely on the creative side of things, and you know that circle, other than than Michael, obviously was um, Vanessa Block, who co-wrote it and uh, was also a main producer on the movie, and uh, Dimitra Singu, who's also um, a main producer on the film. So these there were the three, you know, most creative voices that would interact with us on a daily basis before we open it up to, you know, a larger circle of people. And uh, in close collaboration with uh, the picture editor, of course, uh, for the more technical aspect of things. But it wasn't a very, very clear vision from, from the beginning. And it's, for me, this is something very interesting that happened with this movie because you say it, it all kind of like fell into the right mm -hmm. place. At some point, like we we didn't know exactly how we're gonna get there, 
and we didn't have maybe the most productive or effective <laughs> process ever, but we got there. And there were a lot of different opinions and different um, shifts during the process, uh, but it worked. And, and for me, this is the most important thing that everybody wanted to make the best film we can absolutely make with, with what we have. And, you know, if there's some um, heated argument discussions we're going to have along the way, uh, I'm all, I'm all for it because it's, you know, we're, we're trying to create something unique and we're not gonna, not uh, all going to agree all the time yeah. about everything because we're different artists and we have different views on, on things. Yeah, I, I totally understand. I know that, like Brett Buckman said at one point, there was a three-hour assembly cut of this movie, so I can understand there was probably some uh, chiseling away before we kind of got <laughs> this this finished project uh, that, that that we see today. Yeah, it's it's the same as we have about uh, ten hours uh, worth of music <laughs> that we've written. I mean, you know, there's a lot of footage that you know um, you could you could have in the movie, but we all decided. Um, that final thing which uh you know has great perception by by everybody and we're all very happy with that result so what was both of your reactions like as I start to wrap things up like what were your reactions when you finally got to see the film of if you both had the opportunity to kind of sit down and just enjoy it as opposed to like working on it yeah i mean we were at the dub um, together when they were kind of finishing the mix of the whole film. And I, I mean, that's a bit of a different experience to actually sitting down in the theater and watching mm -hmm. it because we're still kind of in work mode at that point to help, you know, chisel, chisel the, the levels and, and make sure everything's sitting nicely in the film. But um, I, I had went to the premiere um, out here in LA and, and it was, it was a very interesting experience. There were a lot of parts that I just didn't, I guess I appreciate it on a different level when you're sitting with an audience around, you know, when you're feeling the energy of um, people laughing or, or crying or, or, you know, holding their breath, waiting for something to happen. And um, at one point, my wife like le leaned over to me and she said, this is a very, very good movie. <laughs> you know? And and I think like I, I that's what it kind of started to really realize like we had I mean, certainly the reviews were coming out before the premiere, but. You know, and they were all very, very positive. Um, but I, I think that when I finally saw it at the premiere, and you know, you 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 have that kind of audience level participation of 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 feeling. Um, I I I definitely took on a new appreciation for what we had done. You know, I think you really kind of maybe lose sight of that when you're you're deep in the throes of trying to figure out creatively what you're even doing and and and. So that was a nice that was a nice surprise, I guess, for me. Not that it was unexpected, but just <laughs> it was it was a nice moment. Yeah, I didn't I didn't actually uh, get a chance, unfortunately, to watch this in a theater with an audience. I only watched it in the you know our final dub room with the mm -hmm. filmmakers when we were playing the film back. Um, but uh, yeah, I think this is you know due to the times we live and yeah. with COVID restrictions and everything, something that a lot of filmmakers are missing um, to enjoy their films in a premiere with proper audiences and and the whole nine yards. And it's it's something that I've always experienced in the past that when you actually watch a movie in a theater with an audience, uh, that's they instinctively you know instinctively you know if something is working or not. Even if you've seen the movie a thousand times, um, when you watch it with other people around you that are watching it for the first time, 
there's just a weird thing that's that's happening that uh, you realize what you did well, what you did wrong, what you could have done better, and it's it's a completely different experience. And I I really miss that from this film. Um, but I think we all knew from the beginning that you know we have something good in our hands. I I don't think we knew how good it was because you lose <laughs> perspective at some point. Um, so I I admit that I was pleasantly surprised that uh, it seems like that we have something better than maybe I was um, expecting uh, when I was really involved in the film and I I was really in it you know I had I had lost uh, perspective I couldn't be subjective perfect well it sounds like both of you kind of went on a, a hunt of your own to kind of find out find like the perfect score for this film and I'm glad I'm so glad it's obviously worked out and the film is getting such high praise from reviews and stuff like that and the public really seem to be digging it. I always like to end the podcast by asking my guests just one question, and that is, what is your personal favorite Nick Cage movie? Um, I mean, complete guilty pleasure, but I love The Rock. <laughs> Perfect. And and yourself, Alexis? Um, yeah, that's a tough one. I'm I'm gonna go with uh, Raising Arizona. Perfect. Both, both. As you can see, I, I, as you can see, Alexis is much more into cinema. I guess. <laughs> hey, they both, they both Give me have some their visual place. effects. They, they both, they both <laughs> definitely have their place. Well, guys, it's been an absolute pleasure of having you on the podcast. Thank you so much for coming and joining me. All right, thank you. Oh so uh, yeah, thank you, thanks you for having us, and uh, we'll uh, we'll speak soon. Thanks, Alexis. Cheers, guys. And there we go, guys. There is another pig cast in the sty, as it were. Um, if you enjoyed this episode, please do go back and listen to my other interviews that I've done with uh, people from in front of or behind the camera with this film. So you've got Brett W. Buckman, the fantastic editor, who also edited Mandy and Colour Out Space. You have David Nell, who plays the fantastic chef Derek Finway? Who, if you've seen Pig, you know, kind of really puts in a steam ceiling performance and that kind of middle, like, kind of, I don't know, yeah, centerpiece scene we get in this film. And then there's the co writer and producer Vanessa Block, who we get some fantastic chat in that episode talking about how this this film how male centric it is how it's kind of got the got the beating heart of femininity underneath it whether that's kind of heads of production or the crew or kind of in the writing itself and then we have uh, my interview with Chris Zarnecki the head chef of the Joel Palmer house in Oregon who taught Nick to, to look the part when it came to being a chef so if you've enjoyed this one, go back. You'll be able to find them pretty easy. All you have to do is type in Caged In Pigcast onto your podcast platform. Or <laughs> you're listening to this episode, so just just scroll back. They're kind of all listed as bonus episodes. 
as well as make sure you listen to the most current episode of the podcast uh, at the time of release, which was my conversation with Andrew Pope kind of dissecting the film as a whole. And um, yeah, hopefully there may be some more uh, pig-filled conversations in the future, so keep an eye and an ear out for all of that. And if you enjoyed the podcast as well, please be sure to rate, review and subscribe on Acast, Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to this podcast right now. One final thing as well, it saddens me to say that Brandy, the pig from Pig, has sadly passed away. So let's uh, let's have a moment of silence for Brandy and keep her, keep her in our thoughts as we kind of ride out on this episode. As always, guys, I've been Betch Spatsilovus. I've been caged in. I'll catch you next time. This podcast is presented by the Breadcrumbs Collective, home of the Pod Charles Cinecast, Caged In Coppola Connections, A Drip Town Limery, Maine, Franchised, and many more to come. Our shows are all presented ad-free and made possible by listeners like you. Please support our shows by subscribing, leaving ratings and reviews, and becoming patrons at patreon.com. If you'd like to learn more about Breadcrumbs, head over to breadcrumbscollective.com. Breadcrumbs. It's more than a podcast network. It's family.